You hungry? Sure you're hungry. Are you hungry for a plate of mushed-up crickets? No. Are you hungry for tofu? No. You want meat. And when it comes to the meat that will be the centerpiece of your holiday meals, quality matters. And when you invest in high-quality meat from ButcherBox, the benefits go way beyond a great-tasting meal. Every month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high-quality meat right to your home. Free shipping for the continental U.S., by the way. No antibiotics or added hormones. Each box contains between 8 to 14 pounds of meat, depending on which box you choose. That's enough for 24 individual meals. Customize your box or go with one of theirs. Either way, you get exactly what you want. This holiday, ButcherBox is giving new members one pack of bacon for free. Free bacon. One pack of bacon for free in every box. Plus $20 off each box for the first five months of your membership. That's free bacon for life and add up to $100 off. What a great deal. Sign up now at ButcherBox.com slash Ricochet. That's ButcherBox.com slash Ricochet. You got the thing? You got the Omicron? Uh-oh. I have a dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Each and every time it gets me brought up, the other team blocks the ability to even start to discuss it. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and Rob Long. I'm James Lalex, and our guest is Andrew Roberts, author of the new biography of King George III. So let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody, to the Ricochet Podcast, episode number 574. Join us at ricochet.com, won't you? Be part of the most stimulating conversations and community on the web. And here is a reminder for all you Ricochet members. Grab your favorite adult beverage and join us for a no-holds-barred Q&A with Ricochet co-founders Peter Robinson and Rob Long. It's coming up Tuesday, December 21st, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. That's Tuesday, the 21st, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Be there or be uh, tubular. You got to be a member to participate, though. So go to ricochet.com slash join and find out how cheap it is and how many benefits you get. And of course, Rob and Peter are here with us now. Rob, I presume in New York, where he's trying to buy a car, and uh, Peter in California, where as a Californian, he drives one everywhere, heedless, laughing, uh, and paying $65 for gas. Right, Peter? Uh, well, I'm, I'm trying to, I own a car. Oh, okay. You're trying to find out what to do with it. Is that it? Are you, oh, no, you're trying to register a car. Right. Okay, here in, in Minneapolis, that consists of just going somewhere and standing in line yes. for about four minutes, and then you're done. I imagine yes. in New York, it's a labyrinth of uh, wonderful bureaucratic encounters, because we know government does so many things so well. One of the things we kind of expect government to do is, like, make it so we don't die when we go outside from criminality. And all of a sudden, you have mayors all across the country who are saying, hmm... For some odd reason, we can't quite figure out or put our finger on, there's crime, and we're going to stop it. The mayor-elected New York has vowed to make New York City a safe city, <clears throat> following the shooting of a Brooklyn bodega worker. Uh, let's see, I think in uh, former Philadelphia Mayor Michael Nutter, great name, goes after the uh, Philadelphia's progressive prosecutor and says that he's letting down the city. And, of course, San Francisco Mayor London Breed, who is at present painting the barn with the open door through which the horses went an awful long time ago, finally wakes up, smells the coffee, 
as uh, Ann Landers used to say, and had this to say. And it's time that the reign of criminals who are destroying our city, it is time for it to come to an end. And it comes to an end when we take the steps to be more aggressive with law enforcement, more aggressive with the changes in our policies, and less tolerant of all the bullshit that has destroyed our city. Destroyed, not is destroying, but has destroyed. And she swore too. So gentlemen, what do you think? Uh, it's nice to see that finally some of that old time religion is working its way back into the political structure. Too little, too late. Um, do they have the tools to do anything about it? Here in Minnesota, for example, all of a sudden our mayor is saying we're going to fund the police more, we're going to prosecute the, the uh, carjackers more. Um, too little, too late. Do you think it'll work? San Francisco politics sort of elude me because it goes from left to far left. My guess is that the mayor had a session with some business leaders who said, look, we just can't. We just cannot. The insurance rates are going up. Nobody's going to be able to do business in this town. you got to do something. So she gives a speech. She uses a, a, a somewhere the word that she used is still shocking, but not in San Francisco. I can assure you of that. So here's the question. Did she name the DA? Did she accuse the DA of being too soft on criminal criminals? There may be more that she said that I missed. I've heard more than we just played. As far as I can tell, she did not do what she needed to do, which is pick a fight with the DA, who is up in a recall election next spring. She needs to make it clear that she's against him and wants a new DA in there. Did she mention anything about supporting the chief of police? Was the chief of police standing in the back, standing next to her when she gave the speech? Was she announcing more budgeting for the cops in San Francisco? No. So as far as I can tell, it's just pretty good talk, but as far as I can tell, it's just talk. We'll see, maybe more to follow, but for now, just talk. Bob, you're in New York. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, who knows? I mean, I, I confess I don't understand a word of what she said. I don't really know what she meant. Sounded for a minute like she was saying she's going to get tough with law enforcement, like she was going to get tougher with the San Francisco Police Department, of which I think there are probably 12 more remaining members. <laughs> I, I really have I'm, – I'm kind of baffled by what the – I mean, this is success. This is what they – this is what – I mean, is anybody – I'm surprised it happened so quickly, but no one's surprised that it happened. Um, I, I guess what I'm surprised about in New York City anyway is that it, <laughs> it, people remember when it was much better a few years ago. Yes. This has not been a gradual change, and so you, know, you have a lot of young people who you know, don't remember what it was like in 1990 or 1987 for that matter and um, are shocked – that the subways seem unsafe. They're not, I mean, they're, they're, it's not so much that they are statistically unsafe, although they are, but it, it, you, it seems more unsafe. And then the second thing I think, which no one really talks about, um, is it, it's one, uh, in New York City, San Francisco is not a thing. Um, it's not crime that people are worried about here. It's not crime, like, oh, somebody's going to mug me for tw 20 bucks or steal my watch. That, that at this point seems like a, a high-class problem to have. What what in New York City we have is insane, irrational people wandering around the city, causing violent disruption, and they're insane. They're not trying to steal my car radio or my cell phone. That's that. It's not crime. It's something else. It's the city spinning out of control and becoming this this holding pen for ambulatory psychotics and, dr and drug use, which is what. 
Yeah, well, sort of the same. Right. But, but like, but like the, the the level of uncivilized behavior in San Francisco. I mean, yes, people are running into the CBS and stealing things, and that is crime. But to me, that's like, okay, well, more cops on the street will probably solve that. But but the crazy lunatics wandering around New York City. Um, that's a separate problem. It still requires cops, but it's not. It's not what people in New York City are worried about. They're not, they're not worried about putting more locks on their doors and putting those weird little things we used to have, those little metal sticks that used to be bracing the door shut. That's not mm-hmm. – that doesn't seem to be coming back. But it does seem to be coming back because you're on the subway that there's just lawlessness there and insanity. And that's much scarier in a weird way than somebody trying to, trying to steal your car. Well, in the case of San Francisco, and you say more police might do something about the people going into Walgreens, not if it isn't a crime. I mean, if it's a misdemeanor right. to walk well, in and fill up a garbage bag with $950 worth of expensive cosmetics, the police are not going to spend a lot of time on that. Any more, they're going to spend time on investigating somebody who broke a car window to steal all your stuff. You're overwhelmed. Right. You have too many things to do. Right, right. but I'm, it, I'm it, just putting it, all of law enforcement no, in I the know, same I, I, I get that, but the thing, the thing is, is that the reason that they made uh, stealing under a certain amount of money uh, no longer a crime was because they did not want to penalize and victimize poor people who were forced Jean Valjean-like, to steal cosmetics in order to uh, get ahead. And in New York, uh, you, you know, the, the, the legions of the insane and the drug users, all of these things are, are, are cudgels with which they bash the existing order. They're convenient. They're useful. It is useful to have crazy people wandering the street, poor people stealing things, because it shows that this capitalistic hellscape, in which, as they refer to it, has to be abolished, has to be, do- has to be done away with. Obviously, things are failing if you have crazy people in the streets, as opposed to saying, no, it's not a failure of capitalism. It's a failure of will and compassion to do something to take them off. How, many bil- how much money did de Blasio's wife get to do something about this, Rob? You remember? Well, she got lots. She got lots. <laughs> she okay. got lots. And what happened to it? It got spent. It got spent and nothing got done. <laughs> right. Nothing got done. Which just means you need to spend more. And there will be people who will profit out of that and right. people who will pocket. And then, uh, I mean, it's all of a piece. Every single piece of disorder that we have now is being used as evidence that the system doesn't work, as opposed to being used as evidence that the progressive approaches are completely incapable of dealing with civil disorder and criminality. I mean, what is Breed going to say when all of a sudden the activists point out that there's a disparate impact to your policies? That they're arresting the wrong yeah. people, and people are becoming Christian's criminal justice system involved at a rate that they shouldn't be, because it's out of sync with the proportion of the population. They've they've painted themselves into a rhetorical and intellectual corner from which there is no escape. Well, politics. We'll see whether people. We'll see uh, whether the, uh, Budin Budin. I'm not sure I can pronounce his name, but the the DA in San Francisco, the recall petition did get enough signatures. There will be a recall petition in the spring. We'll see if the guy gets booted out as he should be. What should be happening, of course, in California, you're exactly right, by the way, that uh, certain of the crimes, looting and so forth, the DA in San Francisco, and I think the same thing is happening in L.A. So, well, these are only misdemeanors. We don't have the – we're not going to prosecute. Okay. So a, a, a governor of the state of California, even Jerry Brown, I think, might have done this. Here's what happened in California last week. Generators were declared illegal. I happen to pay attention to this because there was one time when our house, <laughs> in a terrible storm, the power went out. PNG, PG&E is no prize, as you may be aware. And we started to get flooding in the backyard. I turned on the sump pump. 
but I couldn't turn it on. So we had to borrow a neighbor's generator to keep our house from flooding. Can't do that now. Illegal. But what is legal? Looting Louis Vuitton in San Francisco. Gavin Newsom, at this very moment, should, if he were a real governor, be calling the legislature back into a special session to enact new laws making this kind of looting illegal, making it much easier for prosecutors to move against them, and to have these laws take effect with the, the, the same date that laws usually take effect is January 1st. That isn't happening here. However, in Rob's great city of New York, Eric Adams, a former policeman, is will become mayor on January 1st. We'll see what he does. I mean, I, it's just a, why it should be that New York, of all places, should respond to the lawlessness that politics in New York seems to be working, and they're not working in California. Right, generators are illegal? Yeah, correct. Gas-powered generators are Ill Why? Let me guess. Because, James, climate, we, climate unlike you in Minnesota, care about our climate out here in California. It is madness. Yes, that's correct. So the state, so the, the, the utility, I, I gather, is, is regulated heavily by the state. Heavily regulated by the state. So heavily okay. regulated. And we're, we're taking our last remaining nuclear power plant offline in some matter of months. There's power outages are going to increase, not decrease. So, so they've made power to be undependable, like a third world state, and then forbidden you, the private citizen, to have a means of keeping your ice cream and, uh, from, from completely melting. Does Nancy Pelosi have a generator, do you think, in that house of hers <laughs> that, with a fridge with 25 I'm pretty sure there's a backup system of some kind. Who knows? She, uh, w of course, the idea here is to push everybody into getting these huge, big batteries to store in your garage for backup power that uh, Elon Musk is selling now. Oh, my Lord. Anyway, don't get me started. You already have. I already have, and I'm glad that I did. Well, uh, hmm. I, I'm stunned about that, that they would ban the generator. But then again, why not? I'm sure that they also want to ban gas ranges, right? Don't they have some new building? Oh, yes, that's in? right. That's okay. right. Because I just went through a six-month procedure to get a new range, and it has gas on top because it's the perfect cooking type Correct. you can use. Electricity is awful, awful, dreadful. And they want to ban that going forward because, of course, of the environment. And they want to take your nuclear power plants out. Got it. Okay, so it's all going to be the wind farms and the solar fields. Got it. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. To keep from weeping. Yes. Indeed. Well, it, Rob, uh, before we go um, to our break, at least New York is beautiful at Christmas time, right? When the fox tree is glowing in a way that just sort of yeah, everything's lovely. It's like a you know, it's a it it looks like feels like Christmas in New York. But um, I suppose that uh, there are already signs that people are becoming terrified of uh, Omnicon or. Omicron was it? Omni Om Omicron was how Biden pronounced it, and that's what I'm. Omicron, Om Omicron, I think I get all confused. Omicron. So uh, who who knows how long it'll last? But um, you know, it seems to me like um, uh, you know the great unifier. We're lo we're losing our great unifier at the end of the year. Bill De Blasio, who brings everyone together, has never been a politician so universally loved as Bill De Blasio. Uh, I just it's just insane to me. You can be uh, you can be in a uber with a uber driver with a maga hat and you can be with you know marching in russian square park with marxist graduate students and they all agree de blasio is the worst uh <laughs> so it's kind of like kind of a christmas kind of place christmas unity um and i you know there's like there's a there is a sense of hope for eric adams that eric adams is like he, whatever he's saying it seems to be the right thing and i was at a party of the weekend 
talking to somebody who uh, works for him, actually, and she's a state assemblywoman. A state is, uh, is that what it, we have here, state assemblywoman? Yes. I think we do. Um, uh, and she's a Democrat, but she kept saying, I'm not an AOC Democrat, she kept telling me. I'm not, I'm not one of those, which I thought was kind of interesting. And she said, oh, this guy is the real deal. I heard two things at the party I thought were kind of interesting. One was that this guy's the real deal, which you usually say when you work for a politician, but she seemed convincing to me, and it, it kind of like it, it, it confirmed my priors about him, which he may actually be a good urban politician. He's a liberal, but he's a good urban politician. Law and order is pretty much his standard there. And the second thing I heard from somebody who's been working, uh, was working uh, in the Trump administration and is continuing that work in the Biden administration, which sort of hopeful and, help and a, a cheerful sign, of uh, uh, essentially of, of, of economic um, uh, economic defenses, American Americans' economic defenses against China, which mm -hmm. I think was uh, which he told me some stuff, sort of off the record, but it's really interesting. And he's been working very closely with Mike Pompeo. He worked with Mike Pompeo uh, under Bush. I, I'm sorry, under Trump, and then continues to work with Mike Mike Pompeo now. And I said, well, what's he like? Well, this guy's going to run for president. You know, he's going to run for president. You don't lose sixty pounds unless you're running. He's going to run for president. So what's he like? And he said, he is really smart. Mm -hmm. Like, really I smart. I keep hearing Number that. one at West Point, but one of his West Point colleagues said he would have been the top of his class at West Point for 20 years before and 20 years after. Mm -hmm. uh, and then sort of just generally sort of super brilliant um, and incredibly mathematical. Apparently, he just likes to look at numbers and stuff. Uh, and this guy's in finance. So he's like, this guy is the smartest person I've ever met uh, and could, could be leading the world's biggest banks if he wanted to. Um, and I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. He's going to run for president. Hmm, that's kind of cheerful. And I just remember one other person telling me uh, who's worked very closely with the uh, Florida governor, DeSantis, saying DeSantis is really smart. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so we're going back to the Ivy League. Um, I think Pompeo is Harvard and DeSantis is Yale. Um, but what I do like is that that people are now, instead of saying things like, you know, he's like, he's really, well, you know, all that weasel wording we do uh, on the right sometimes when, when our candidates are showing up in the high wire act, we're worried about what they might say. Suddenly we're saying things like, no, 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 no. He's really, he's the smartest guy in the world. Um, and that's, uh, I don't know, as we enter 2022, maybe that's good to hear. Interesting. Well, sometimes this one. I can't help noting, by the way, how much of Rob's politics over the years he has arranged around the imperative of avoiding cringing when we have debates. Yeah, no, no. The, the high wire act that we uh, we engage in, uh, or not we, I mean, I, I, I maintain studious independence politically, but the high wire act that the Republican Party engages in is so weird. Um, considering uh, how smart some of the candidates are, it's just an interesting thing. And I, I suspect that with these guys, we're not going to have that problem. If they run. I mean, who knows? Well, sometimes the smartest guy in the room is not in the room at all because he's at home. See if the room is the post office, right? If you're looking for ways to skip the trip to the post office and be that smart person who actually does something that's more sensible, you want to dodge all that hectic holiday shopping traffic, don't you? Stay home. Save time. Save money with Stamps.com. Stamps.com lets you compare rates, print your labels, access exclusive discounts from UPS and USPS services all year long. It just makes sense, frankly. Especially if your business sends more mail and packages during the holidays, or if you're one of those people who's sending out Christmas letters still. Yes, some people still do that. We do. And it's kind of nice not to have to dig out the stamps with the uh, religious imagery or the Santa on it. No, you can just print them off at home. So if you're selling online, for example, or if you're running an office or you've got some sort of side hustle going that requires mailing, stamps.com 
can save you, save you so much time, so much money, and so much stress during the holidays. Access all of the post office and UPS shipping services when you need them without taking that trip. And you get discounts you can't find anywhere else. No, you can't. Like up to 40% off USPS rates and 76% off UPS. If you spend more than a few minutes a week dealing with mailing and shipping, a lot of us do, Stamps.com is a lifesaver. It'll save so much time and so much money, you'll wonder why you didn't start sooner. So start sooner. Start now. Save time and money during the holiday season with Stamps.com. Sign up with the promo code RICOCHET for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, and digital scaling. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and enter the code RICOCHET. And we thank Stamps.com for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast, Andrew Roberts. He's a visiting professor at King's College London and a visiting research fellow at the Hoover Institution. His contemporary commentary has appeared in the Daily Telegraph and the Spectator. He's written well over a dozen war histories, including the acclaimed Storm of War. Today he's here to tell us about his most recent book, George III, The Life and Reign of Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch. Some of us only know him from the history books or from the Madness movie. Um, then there's this musical approach. You'll be back, soon you'll see. You'll remember you belong to me. You'll be back, time will tell. You'll remember that I served you well. Andrew, you've dealt with this one before. Accurate, <laughs> well, I, 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 I love the show, you know. I, I, my foot was tapping just as much as any... Eddie Americans <laughs> at that point. <laughs> By the my way, foot, before, you tell us, before you tell us the ways in which that portrayal is incorrect, I should note that the London Times chose – what's the title in – no, I get confused because there are two different titles. One in this country, George, The Last King of America is what, it's, is what we need to tell our listeners to look for. The Last King of America. The Times of London chose it not as one of the books of the year – but as the book of the year, and Victor Davis Hanson has taken to referring to you, Andrew Roberts, as the finest biographer working in English. All right. Having got those little trifles out of the way, what's wrong with that, portray <laughs> with that portrayal of George III? Um, well, the, the first thing that he says, of course, is that, um, that you'll be back, as though he couldn't uh, face the fact that uh, America had become independent. In fact, of course, in June 1785, he said this to John Adams, the first American ambassador to uh, London. I'll be very frank with you. I was the last to consent to the separation, but the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I've always said, and I say now, that I will be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. That's pretty gracious, I think, totally unlike uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's um, statement. The second one, obviously, is the bit about the sending the battalions to kill it friends and family to remind uh, anybody of um, of his love. He was the exact opposite of that kind of sinister, uh, cruel and uh, and vicious tyrant um, because he wasn't a tyrant at all. We've got another couple of questions and then Rob Long and James Lilacs want to have at you. Two of the pleasures of the book. Each of these questions refers to one of the pleasures that I found in the book. One is, and I'm going to ask you to do something in 20 seconds that you spend 600 pages doing in the book. But one is for an American, we think of the American Revolution, we are, of course, perfectly understandably taught the revolution, and the, your three hosts are old enough to have been taught the revolution, who knows what happens in schools today, but of course we're taught it from the American point of view. And what the 
book makes so clear is the larger historical context as seen from London, that it's a world war, which you're about to explain, and that the government, George III is king, he has a government, the government is not only fighting Americans in North America, they're fighting English politicians in the House of Commons. That's very, yes. Um, it's a bit like the end of the Vietnam War, really. The, the war was lost uh, in the Congress, just as in the American War of Independence, the war was ultimately lost in Parliament. The radical Whigs uh, withdrew the funding for the, uh, for the conflict, and, uh, and therefore it had to end. The second pleasure of the book is finding out what an enjoyable human being George III seems to have been. So here's one way of getting at that in brief. What was Christmas like? in Buckingham House, as it was then called, during the reign of George, when he's in, when he's in his prime and has his children around him? Well, actually, uh, it's his wife, of course, Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, who brings the Christmas tree to, uh, to England. It's often thought of as being um, Prince Albert who did that in Queen Victoria's reign, but, uh, but Charlotte did that. It was a very sort of German uh, tradition, and it was jolly. Um, they were a, a large family. They had 15 children. They were a loving family. Uh, the king and queen were the only two Hanoverian uh, king and queen actually to love each other and for the king not to have any mistresses and so on. And so it was actually a, a rather lovely time of year in, uh, at, at Christmas in uh, Buckingham House. Mm. And now I relinquish you to Rob Long with the warning that he has Republican tendencies. <laughs> well, not really. Um, I, got, I guess what I would like to know, so, so if it wasn't George III, why'd you lose? Oh, right, um, because it was an impossible war to win once it was clear that the, um, the Continental Army wasn't going to be captured in, in um, either Manhattan or New Jersey. Right. Uh, Although the was... history of the war is pretty much unbroken defeats for the Continental Army. Absolutely, but they're, never, but they're never captured in the way that uh, Burgoyne right. is at Saratoga and, uh, and, of course, Cornwallis was at Yorktown. The, the Fabian strategy of George Washington in avoiding any battles that, um, that would end the war uh, was a brilliant one. And also his own stamina and his charisma in keeping the army together at Valley Forge was, um, was a, another huge factor in uh, our defeat. So just as the, you mentioned, the, the rule is land, don't get involved in land wars in Asia. Don't get involved in land wars in the 3,000 miles home. away, you know, where you've got these lines of communication that are 3,000 miles. And every soldier needs one third of a ton of equipment and, right. uh, and food and uniforms and ammunition and so on to be shipped out those 3,000 miles. It becomes logistically an incredibly difficult war to win, especially when the, when the British generals make a series of, um, of terrible strategic errors. Right. So if they, they had made better choices early on, do you think it would have gone a different way? I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, I've always imagined, and correct me if I'm wrong, this may just be a completely pointless point uh, statement, but that the person who won or who lost the colonies for the British or won them independence, the Britain who did that, was Edmund Burke. Um, no, I would take issue on uh, with you on on that. Okay. Certainly, um, he uh, no the person the person who lost uh, the war for Britain, unfortunately, was um, uh, I, I shouldn't say unfortunately on a show like this. Apologies, <laughs> <laughs> was, <laughs> um, was Sir William Howe because there was a perfectly good plan, the Germain plan, which was to bring Sir William Howe up from New York up the Hudson at the same time that uh, Sir John Burgoyne was coming down from Canada 
to meet at Albany and try to split, use the Hudson Valley to command of the Hudson to split the New England colonies off from the rest of the colonies. And uh, instead, he veered off eastwards um, without mm-hmm. orders to capture the, the rebel capital of Philadelphia. It was a uh, well, uh, disaster. As an American, we, we tend to think of it as sort of a, this philosophically inevitable thing that there's a bunch of sort of, uh, you know, Republicans far enough away from London and far enough away from sort of the, the aura of, of, of the royal aura to be thinking, you know, bold thoughts about the rights of man, et cetera. And that inevitably, the the the, the birth of a, of this nation was sort of inevitable. It was going to happen because the people are free. And you're telling me, no, actually, it was a you know this this or that tactical blunder. No, I don't. Um, I don't disagree with you. Actually, I think ultimately it would have been inevitable. But no war is inevitable. There are so many things going on in war that uh, that uh, frankly either side can usually win under certain circumstances. But I agree overall. Certainly by the 1770s, you know, you have 3.5 million um, population. You've got a year-on-year growth, burgeoning economy of about 7% year-on-year. You've got as many bookshops in Philadelphia as in any other city of the empire apart from London. And you have no French threat left on the North American continent after the Treaty of Paris in 1763. So, no, I do agree that insofar as anything's inevitable, um, uh, American independence is, however... Uh, that particular war had some things, had Bunker Hill, for example, gone radically differently, mm-hmm. um, things might have just taken much longer to have panned out. You know, the 1619 Project from the New York Times assures us that America was founded uh, for slavery, in slavery, of slavery, etc., and then surely that must mean that the bloodthirsty, cruel tyrant George III himself was, was way pro-slavery, that being soaked into every aspect of the American experience. That's wrong, isn't it? It's totally wrong, yes. In fact, Her Majesty the Queen has allowed 100,000 pages of uh, George III's private papers, his uh, his correspondence and uh, memoranda and essays and so on, to be uh, made available since 2015. And I discovered in that um, in that huge cornucopia of, uh, of um, new information absolutely nothing to support the 1619 project's statement essentially that uh, that it was to protect slavery that the founding fathers um, rebelled because there was no plan of John George III's side to uh, extend abolition to the um, I mean it was slavery wasn't allowed in in Britain since Magna Carta and certainly since the 1772 Mansfield judgment but they weren't going to extend that either to the West Indies or to the American colonies and in those papers there's also um, a particularly fascinating attack that George III makes when he's Prince of Wales in the 1750s on the arguments in favour of slavery uh, in, a, in a fascinating essay he's written on Montesquieu's Essays on the Lords. Do you mind if I just quote one sentence from Please. this? Please. got time for It's very... Um, Which you just happen to have right there, almost as if I, you I, I sure do. I carry it around with me everywhere, just in case I'm asked this particular question. Um, what shall we say for a European traffic in black slaves? The very reasons urged for it will be perhaps sufficient to make us hold such practice in execration. For an inhuman custom wantonly practiced by the most enlightened, polite nations in the world, there is no occasion to answer them, for they stand self-condemned. So, so George III never bought or sold a slave, never owned a slave, never bought any of the shares in any companies to, that did that, and of course he signed the legislation that ultimately ended the slave trade. An execration. 
I, it, it sounds like the work of a thinking, sensitive, intelligent man. And we are led to believe somehow that uh, the European monarchs were all a bunch of inbred hemophiliac weak uh, people with limited intellects. How would you compare George III to his contemporaries? Was he as smart as, smarter than, more enlightened? Uh, well, he was certainly an enlightened monarch and a highly cultured monarch um, in terms of, uh, of painting and architecture and and literature and bibliography and astronomy and all of those enlightenment subjects. He was he was one of our most uh, cultured monarchs. Um, and yes, he's been made out. You're right. He's been made out by generations of Greek historians to be thick, basically. Um, but when you actually look at it and you and you see the essays he was writing in Af in Latin at the age of eight and so on, he wasn't thick in the slightest. This is just a a rationalization later by the Greek historians, unfortunately, uh, seems to have seems to have um, stuck there. Compared mm -hmm. to his other contemporaries, uh, well, he did have some impressive contemporaries in Catherine the Great and Frederick the Great, who were also, uh, you know, enlightened despots, essentially. Um, but he wasn't one. He wasn't a despot of Greece. He just was enlightened. Andrew, this is a point when when we recorded our interview for Uncommon Knowledge, which will air soon, you touched on this point, and it's been going around in the back of my mind since. And you made the following point, that at that moment, the Americans had great figures. I was very struck that, you, that these figures that we're taught are great do stand up as great. Washington, Adams, Jeff, these are, they had their faults, Jefferson, many faults, of course, but they were remarkable figures. And the British leadership was, by contrast, at that time, quite weak. And it occurred to me afterwards uh, George III is insane at this point, but as the Napoleonic Wars get wrapped up under his son as Prince Regent, Britain by this point has Nelson and Wellington. And I think to myself, if anybody knows what calls forth great figures, it's the biographer of Napoleon and George III and the man who wrote Masters and Commanders about the leaders of the Second World War. So the question is, we go from Thatcher and Reagan to Boris and Biden, and you get the feeling that the whole world, the whole English-speaking world, is waiting for something new, for some, some kind of leadership to reemerge. What calls forth the great figures? Well, I think you're absolutely right, especially when you look, it doesn't just stop with Nelson and, uh, and Wellington. You also, at that same period, have Castlereagh and Canning and Pitt, um, Pitt the Younger, of course. And um, Spencer Percival, in his own way, was a, was a pretty impressive uh, leader until he was assassinated. So it has to be, doesn't it? And it's also the same with Churchill, who, of course, would never have become prime minister had it not been for the World War, um, that there needs to be the threat that is commensurate with the uh, people who come forward. With Winston Churchill, it's obvious. With Reagan and Thatcher as well, it's obvious. Unfortunately now, um, and I don't know the reason for this, people are not seeing the, for me, completely obvious totalitarian threat posed by uh, Xi and Putin and Iran um, as being the, uh, North Korea, as being the kind of existential crisis that the West is having to face for now the fourth time since 1914. Um, and until we do recognise that, I'm afraid we are going to wind up with uh, with frankly, second-rate leaders. Well, does this period remind, sorry, we'll get back to George III in a moment, but does this period remind you of, say, the 30s, 
in Britain when the whole establishment just didn't want to look. They all wanted to look the other way. I, I do. I do see the um, equivalence. Yes. I mean, uh, you see it particularly, I think, with the Iranian nuclear situation. You know, people just want to be as optimistic as possible and uh, rather than realistic. And uh, and it, it, it just doesn't work. You know, you have to sometimes actually listen to what leaders, your uh, opponents and antagonists say. And uh, when you listen to what the Iranian leaders say about uh, about Israel um, and about the great Satan and the little Satan and so on, you know, occasionally you, you ought to actually believe that right. they're, they're being uh, genuine, just as we as we ignored um, the threats from Hitler and indeed Stalin again and again, however loudly and, uh, and often they were made. Um, uh, and, um, and what happened? The result was global disaster. So I said a moment ago that toward the end of his reign, George III was mad. If Americans know two things about George III, it's that he lost us and that he was mad. But you yeah, are, and lots of them put two, the, the two and two together. As yes, yes, right, yeah. right. Yeah. He wasn't mad as as the porphyry or some strange. What, what do we now understand about his his madness, the medical causes, and the effects it had on his policies, if any? Um, it it was not porphyria. Uh, we know that now. The um, the medical view is uh, is pretty much uniform in saying that uh, this was a terrible misdiagnosis back in the nineteen sixties because the the team who gave the doctors the statistics and facts actually gave a deliberately misleading series of symptoms. Um, but what we also know is that because he only had a prodrome attack of what really ailed him, which was bipolar disorder, effective type one. Um, in fact, he had that in 1765 at about the same time as the passing of the um, Stamp Act. But then absolutely nothing for 22 years. He was totally sane all the way through until 1788, which, of course, was five years after America became independent. So it was it had no bearing whatsoever on the American Revolution or on the American War of Independence. Ali's instance says we've seen a reevaluation of him, the pendulum swinging the other way. Oh, and speaking of pendulums, the way it feels when you go back and forth, and sometimes that's because your diet's off, you're not exercising. But you know, the thing about your health, it is more than just diet and exercise. Research increasingly shows us that a healthy gut microbiome, you've been hearing a lot about that, haven't you? Well, a healthy gut microbiome is crucial to a healthy life. Over time, people with type 2 diabetes lose their gut bacteria, the stuff that helps them digest fiber and manage their blood glucose levels. For those with type 2 diabetes, diet and exercise alone are often not enough to manage. The best approach emphasizes diet, exercise, and a healthy gut microbiome. Our sponsor, Pendulum Therapeutics, is the first and only biotech company to, one, isolate an important beneficial bacteria strain, and two, put that strain into a convenient new probiotic-rich capsule that is formulated to help manage type 2 diabetes and nurture your body's microbiome. Pendulum Glucose Control is designed to lower A1C and after-meal blood glucose levels to help you manage your type 2 diabetes. It can feel like an uphill battle sometimes to keep your post-meal blood sugar and your A1C levels where you need them. And if you've struggled to manage them with diet and exercise alone, Pendulum can help fill in the gaps. With Pendulum, you can feel in control of your levels, not the other way around. If you or someone you love has type 2 diabetes, take control of glucose levels with Pendulum Glucose Control. Use the code RICOCHET at PendulumLife.com to get 20% off all the products. That's P-E-N-D-U-L-U-M-L-I-F-E 
Pendulumlife.com. Pendulumlife.com. Promo code Ricochet for 20% off. And we thank Pendulum for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. Rob? I, I guess what I'm, I'm, my, I'm also drawn to what ifs, Brenna. What if things? What if they had made a deal? There was a deal to be made, right? There certainly was, yes. And in fact, uh, they did hope, the British government did hope to try to make a deal when it sent out the Carlisle Peace Commission in 1778. But by that stage, too much blood had been shed and there was too much water under the bridge and too many Americans recognised that that they did have independence in their grasp for any deal to be done. But let's go back, say, to the time of the Boston Tea Party. Instead of the intolerable act in 1774, you mm. had some kind of a very um, forward-thinking agreement between Lord North and Benjamin Franklin uh, negotiated, which gave them essentially a, a kind of um, Commonwealth system. It doesn't really come into effect right. in Britain until 1931. But if you have a Commonwealth system whereby there is a centralised parliament and America uh, entirely makes up its own uh, laws and taxes itself, um, but keeps the king as uh, and stays as part of the British Empire, um, then that, uh, of course, would have meant that um, the English-speaking peoples would have been so powerful. The combination of what became the American Republic and the British Empire would have been oh so powerful by 1914 that the Kaiser could never have declared war against uh, against the English-speaking peoples. Surely, hundred hundred years later would have been an incredible juggernaut. But but obviously, that hundred years things would have happened. I mean, like I was wondering if you could do a if you were going to do a what if they make a deal, um, this kind of a special arrangement with the colonies that the United States just seems to be allowed to grow and it sends tribute back, you know, like a back to the mob boss back in London. You keep sending <laughs> your you kicking the money upstairs, um, and then in, I was just thinking about in the, the Clayton Christensen sense of the uh, of the innovator's dilemma, right? That there's a disruptive technology, a disruptive force within your organization. That needs to be fed and watered and nurtured, and eventually that disruptive group will take over the whole, right? So if you're IBM, had they put more money into laptops early on, it would have taken over their mainframe business. That would have been a good thing for IBM. Could that have happened to Britain? Would there have been this moment where, I mean, now we have it in farce where the the, the second prince is living <laughs> in Santa Barbara with a TV star. I mean, who well, would have changed yeah. whom? In a sense, it, it already had happened to Britain because um, because George III was the Elector of Hanover, and his great grandfather had only come over from Hanover forty six years previously. So we'd only had them for forty six years. Had they then moved on to New York, uh, he could have treated um, Britain in the same way that when he was King of Britain they treated Hanover, which was as very much as a as a um, a province. Uh, then it's hard not to imagine the United States. In the uh, the end of the 18th and throughout the 19th century, wouldn't be this tremendous, tremendously attractive place for the best and brightest and most entrepreneurial Englishmen to get on a boat and come come here and make your fortune. Yeah, my God, and lots of lots of them did anyway. And then take it one one stage further than that. You also have large numbers of these essentially liberal-minded Englishmen who um, who've been brought up under the common law under Magna Carta and under the Mansfield judgment, essentially start starting to deconstruct peacefully and with economic foresight, deconstructing slavery um, in the 1820s and 1830s. 1820s, right. mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. got rid of it in 1833 um, 
entirely throughout the British Empire. Now, if America managed to do that and save the 700,000 or so killed in the American Civil War, imagine what a powerhouse um, these two groups would have been by the time of uh, of 1914. But it is also possible that the British at home uh, in London, uh, uh, in a unified sort of Anglo-American economy, would have thought, well... Why don't we let slavery die out on its own? There were some economic imperatives there. So who knows what would have happened, but it would be very interesting to know just who would have changed whom more. Although yes, both, of those, both of these countries and cultures have had an enormous well, we, impact on each other. We so. know that America would have far worse breakfasts. <laughs> Are you kidding me? We'd be, we'd be getting up to beans and black oh, pudding God, and that, that, full and that, English. Sign and, me up. And that, yeah, uh, that yeah. Bacon and and so, unfortunately, you'd have been you'd have not been able to have had those stacks of pancakes no, that go no, nine no. up. That right. uh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. The horror, we wouldn't have had silver dollar pancakes. We've been <laughs> silver <laughs> silver sovereign pancakes. No, ma- no maple There's syrup. Nothing better than a full <laughs> English breakfast. That's for sure. I, I know. I love an English breakfast once a year too. Um, Andrew, uh, you know, people love to read a biography that goes against the conventional wisdom because they learn that their eyes are opened. They see that their what they were told before was wrong for a variety of reasons, either propaganda or incompetence or the rest of it. I remember many years ago I read a biography of uh, a new biography of Nero, which was actually quite startling because it said a lot of what you're hearing, you are typical idea of the guy is a drunk, dissolute man who played the liar while Rome burnt. Let's back this up and look at why he was treated the way he was. And ever since then, I've sort of had a skeptical eye at some of the received wisdom when it comes to historical characters. And I imagine that you probably are looking at somebody else. Who would you like to write another a biography about, a world leader from the past, who you think we got wrong? Well, I am actually already. I haven't signed the contract yet, but I'm about to write a biography of Disraeli. Um, the uh, the great Benjamin Disraeli, who started off as somebody who was uh, was poor, almost completely bankrupt, um, again and again, who only en- entered politics in order not to be arrested for bankruptcy, who was Jewish, of course, and therefore a complete outsider to the very snobbish and and racist Victorian uh, aristocracy of the of the mid nineteenth century, and who was also not a public schoolboy, he didn't go to uh, Oxford or Cambridge, and so he was a total outsider, and yet through his own wit and brilliance and great timing and political foresight, he managed to become the uh, the head of what was then the largest empire in the world, so uh, I think that's going to be, it's not necessarily going to be terribly revisionist, I don't know, it depends on what I find in the evidence, but nonetheless, it's a hell of a story. Mm-hmm. Andrew, you're on with three writers. I want Rob and James to hear from your lips, because it would be otherwise incredible, your writing schedule. <laughs> You're obsessed with this, aren't you, Peter? I am. Every time, every time I see you, you, you bring this up. I, I am. I, don't, <laughs> um, I start work at, uh, well, today it was 3.30 in the morning. It's usually between 4.30 and 5 in the morning. And uh, I find that I can get a good four hours five hours sometimes sleep before anybody phones you up or in, sorry work before anybody phones you up or in any way uh, sort of uh, annoys you and then I make sure I have an hour's nap or three quarters of an hour's nap every afternoon which I find can um, squeeze out some more time in the evenings and so I I tend to be able to write about 4,000 words a day uh, when I'm writing books that is. Blackers. After after you visited Hoover Andrew I tried the the Roberts Regiment, <laughs> three days. 
I lasted, <laughs> wow. I lasted three days. I was so miserable. My wife told me, just sleep in. Stop this nonsense. Last I'm, uh, question. I'm exhausted now. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew, last question. So it happened. The alter Although I can see the glint in Rob's eye, George in New York, the musical, there will be notes made up. Book by Andrew Roberts, libretto by Rob Long. I can see it coming. <laughs> but it did happen. The breakup did happen. And here we are all these years later facing these threats that you just mentioned. Britain has reasserted its sovereignty by enacting Brexit, by breaking away from the European Union. What residual value is there in in what we still call the special relationship well i yeah I, I i've read a lot of obituaries of the people who've written the obituaries of the special relationship i think it has a lot more still to go for it so long as um britain does take advantage of its uh, newly found sovereign independence away from the european union to um to rebuild um, bridges with America and to be more supportive of America. Um, I think that we've got a, a real opportunity now for the Anglosphere, for um, America, Australia, New Zealand, Canada and, uh, and the United Kingdom to act more closely together. What we've also got to do is make sure that we push up defence spending higher than the pathetic 2% that we have at the moment. We've got to be, if we're to be taken seriously by us, like by America as a superpower, which you know, like like yourselves, we can't just um, just carry on uh, nickel and diming on on our defence. And if we do have some um, some foresight to sort of try to reconstruct that English speaking people's vision of uh, of Churchill's, uh, I think that we could have a very happy future together. Andrew, knowing what time I go to bed after doing my evening writing, and knowing what time my nap is imminent, I'm just working at the schedule for you. You probably have a nap en route soon, and I don't want to get in front of any man's restorative slumber. So off with you. Thank you so much. George III, The Life and Reign of Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch. Andrew Robinson. Enjoy your siesta, Andrew. Rogers. And Merry Christmas. Merry Thank Christmas. you very much. Uh, you know, Rob's question about the, you know, the continuing cultural, economic influence of Britain on America had we had a, a, a longer relationship is fascinating. I was at a wedding a couple of weeks ago, and there was – the wedding was – the dress was just amazingly formal in ways that I could not come up to. I can't – I don't have to swallow cocktails that I can fit into my suitcase, which left me halfway across the country. But some people uh, added a little uh, detail, like a ruffle, a ruffle, a cravat, which was so – 19th century. I thought that was pretty cool. Not many people can carry off a cravat. Uh, the groom could carry off a certain style of morning coat, whatever the hell those were. And sometimes you just have to stand back and say, that person has style. You really do. Personal style, frankly, it defines who you are as a person, and it helps you express yourself as well. At the end of the year, yes, this is a pretty good time to take a look at your closet, your style, and decides what's working and what isn't. Indochino can get your closet to where you want it to be before the New Year starts. So, first of all, this is not like just going online and saying, I want that shirt, I want that pants, I hope they fit. No, you go online and it's the personal digital equivalent of having some guy with you know a little piece of chalk and a caper on his neck fit you out. That's what's great about it. So you go on and you figure out what your sizes are so when you, when you get something, it's going to fit. And not just fit like, yeah, it's not too tight. I mean, it's going to fit. 
Indochino offers completely custom-fitted suits, shirts, casual wear, and more, and they're surprisingly affordable prices. Get a wardrobe personalized to your style and to your taste without spending a fortune. Every piece is made to your exact measurements, and you can customize every detail. Choose everything about your suit. You can the fabric, the label, the monogram, the statement linings. You can create a suit that fits you and your style perfectly. The best part? Indochino suits start from just $429, and the shirts from $79 with all customizations included. Give yourself a custom closet revamp for the new year with Indochino, or give the gift of great style with an Indochino gift card. Get $50 off any purchase of $399 or more by using the promo code RICOCHET at Indochino.com. That's $50 off your purchase of $399 or more at I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com. Promo code Ricochet. And we thank Indochino for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Well, before we go, I like to be in America, frankly. So does Rob. And Peter, however, likes to be in America because that's where he saw West Side Story. I was talking about this with Andy Ferguson as we were driving around a couple of weeks ago. You know, great writer that we all know and admire. We all came back to the same thing. He wanted to know how well they handled the music in the dance scene because that's one of the greatest pieces of 20th century music that, that Lenny ever did. It's just absolutely great. The two cultures, the two sounds, it's wonderful. What I heard from the soundtrack didn't make me happy because it lacked something that the original had. It's almost, they did a pretty good simulacrum of the original spirit, but, for example, in the Jets song, they just sounded like musical theater guys as opposed to a bunch of toughs who'd come off and were sort of off-key warbling this tune. But, Peter, you've seen it. Tell us what you think. Hmm. Well, you guys haven't seen this, so I won't go on and on and on, although there's a lot there. The music struck me as really wonderful, although now that you mention it, it could be because I was in a theater with Dolby Sound, with the kind of sound system mm -hmm. that wasn't available in 1961 when the original came out. But the music struck me as just wonderful. Steven Spielberg can stage a scene with a lot of action in it, and so the dance scenes are big and colorful and, I thought, just sensationally good. Here, are, my quibble about the movie is that the changes didn't seem to me to improve it. The changes are of two kinds. One, a note here and a note there to make it more politically relevant. Didn't seem to work to me to enhance the drama. And the second kind, I'm just I'm mentioning this without a spoiler, that the certain deaths take place earlier in this version. They really moved around the script, the timing, the sequence, and it affected what followed in the last third or so of the movie in ways that I didn't think worked. I didn't see any improvement on the 1961 original. Well, that's, that's John Pot. Sorry. Go John Pot Horowitz calls the 1961 original unwatchable now, and I just don't get that. What? Anyhow. The saddest bit is we went to see it in the Cineplex, and they put it in the big theater, so there were 300 seats, and there are the reclining seats that with heating in them, and you can get order meals. In other words, this was as inviting a, a setting as you could possibly have. 300 seats, 12 people in the theater. 12 people in the theater for the big holiday release. That business is gone. Hmm. I don't mean to be a Carl Pilkington here, but do we need it? Why did we need this? Exactly. <laughs> why did we need this movie or this business? This, no, no, the, the, the business. I love movies. I love. But why did we need to do West Side Story again? What was it about the original that we were lacking? Hot Horse calls it unwatchable because it's stagey, because it's obviously, you know, the set under the freeway where they have the rumble is unconvincing. 
I think I, I've seen the original recently, and it's still an absolutely fantastic movie. I think it stands up myself. We'd have to actually, maybe who knows? Is well, there a, is there a, is there a new guest in this? Should we have John on to fight about it? Yes, we or have you guys talked about it on Glop, Rob? I yeah, we talked about it on a Glop for. Well, he talked about it for 45 minutes. Oh, okay. I guess I Notice I guess my studious silence here. I just have no <laughs> more energy to talk about this. Well, the, the thing is, it, we had a thread about this on Ricochet in the member feed, which everybody should go and join, of course, because we got a lot of fun stuff going on there that never hits the front page. We're talking about West Side Story, whether or not it's Wolf just killed it, whether or not it was bad. I, I just wanted to say, having not seen it, I'm disappointed they didn't get Tony and Riff back in this one. They're still alive. They're still working. The guys were great in Twin Peaks. And for that matter, Gladhand is the name of the social worker who started the dance at the gym. Do you remember that? He's the guy who comes on and makes all these earnest statements right. about the kids and how they're going to have great fun. And who played that character? Uh, 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 Adam's family. What's Gomez, right. John asked. He's still John alive. Asked. He's still alive as well. Maybe Spielberg did. Maybe somewhere in a chair in the back of the sequence there's John Aston grinning at the fact that he got to do it again. But I, I want to see it again because it is one of the great, great American musicals, and I also don't want all the movie theaters to go away. Hey, last uh, episode here of 21. we got 22 coming up. I suppose we should do... <laughs> find that sounder. Next year's big story. We'll be talking about what we think is going to happen in 22. I uh, don't want to put my previous predictions on the record here because I'm sure I'll be shown to be a complete and utter failure at prognostication, but I'll give you guys the opportunity. Uh, so do you think the Republicans are going to retake Congress? Hmm? Definitely. Definitely. I know, uh, uh, what is it now, 11 months. 11 months is an eternity in politics. I can't imagine any way that this turns around for the Democrats. The economy may improve a little bit, but inflation is going to be with us. The Fed doesn't have the guts to stand up to it. The Chinese, the Russians, nothing in the world is going to get better, and nothing can restrain the hard progressive woke left of the Democratic Party and the American people. The, this is going to be a, a national upchuck. Get these people out. Joe Biden is talking about a winter of death and suffering, words to that effect as is everybody else, because Omicron is going to lay low. I think it was CNN that said the other day that they're looking at the, that the, the early months of 2022 are going to look like March 2020, which is remarkably anti-scientific and irresponsible, to say the least. <laughs> but they love it. They love it. The only thing better for ratings than Trump would be COVID. And they're going to ride that one as long as they can. Rob, what say you when you look ahead to the year? Yeah, that's kind of what I think it's going to be. I mean, I think it'll be the final conclusion to COVID, um, whether whether they won't like it or not. People are just done. They're done with it. And um, um, Omicron um, is, I mean, even, even, the, even coming up with such an idiotic name that sounds scientific but really isn't, it's just, it, you're, you're, it's hard to keep scaring people for two full years um, when the evidence of their eyes and ears is something different. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be just really, really difficult. And I think that uh, at some point someone's going to do what uh, Jay Bhattacharya says to do, which is declare victory. And that will not be somebody on the left, which is impossible. Um, that will be somebody on the right and probably somebody with some firsthand experience uh, managing uh, the COVID crisis for the past two years. And, um, I mean – 
and that will be leadership. I mean, look, if you ask America, and you say to Americans, did, did, did the uh, infrastructure bill pass or not? Did the um, Build Back Better bill pass or not? Did these things pass? Uh, are these things – people have – these things are just evanescent. They're gone from your mm -hmm. memory. Everyone just wants these things to be over and wants to turn the page, as Peter said, and change the channel. And um, I would just hate to be the, the, the channel on the TV right now when the <laughs> people want to change it. Well, The Atlantic had a piece about uh, how there will be no return to post-pandemic normality. And the author, who seems to be projecting his psychoses and neuroses on the entire world, is just feeling as though uh, there is a never-ending change that has come about, that we will never be able to feel normal again. And it was put on Twitter. It was followed promptly by 500 tweets by people who said, dude, I've been living normally for a year and a half. I mean, all of these people chiming in and saying, you are living in an extremely constrained little place that amplifies and self-rewards all of the things that you think get out in the world. It's a big country. People are living normally here all over the place. Even here in Minnesota with Omicron raging, I walk through the skyways and I see all the young people who've gone back to work in the office, they're maskless. They're just not going to do that anymore. They're just not. And so Rob's right. Somebody's going to declare it over. And it may be a Democrat because I think you've seen in Colorado and elsewhere, you've right. seen them saying we're not going to reimpose. It's, uh, we're we're going to go on. And like crime, they got to come around. But, you know, the thing is, is the media is going to give the left credit for bringing down crime because when the right said anything about it, it was for the wrong reasons. Right. Likewise, when the right says anything about returning to normal after COVID, it's for the wrong reasons because they wanted to just – kill off uh, you know the the marginalized people and deny science so it, it'll be applauded as a sentimental as a, as a sensible thing when somebody on the left says it on the end of covid could i try out a thought on the two of you i stipulate that i'm no epidemiologist i stipulate further that i actually have thought less about this than <laughs> rob and i think james has thought about it more than i have as well however here's what occurs to me and this is because i'm scheduled to get my moderna booster shot next week i've had two moderna shots each one took three days out of my life, two days in bed feeling just miserable and another day feeling too groggy to be effective in work. Okay, I read about whatever it's called, Omicron, or sounds like a new studio to me. Omicron apparently spreads extremely quickly. It confers the same immunity that really getting COVID, it's a form of COVID, and the symptoms are extremely mild. So if the symptoms of this Omnicom thing are at the level of my Moderna reaction or lower, isn't this God's vaccine? Doesn't this just get us past it? Shouldn't we almost be grateful that we've got this much, much, much apparently less dangerous version of the vaccine, I beg your pardon, of the virus, running or galloping around the world, making everybody conferring an, an, an immunity on everybody? Or am I just utterly insane to say such a thing? To some people you are, because you are denying the fact that people will get it, not know it, give it to their child, who will go to school, who will give it to the teacher, who will then promptly go to their 80-year-old mothers with comorbidities and cough in their face. That there's always, there's always going to be that. There's always you still have to worry about the very old. As, well, no, you still have to worry. That's just it. As long uh, as it's right. out there, you still have to worry, and that means that you still have to do a couple of things that show that you care. If you don't wear a mask, you don't care, and you want people to die in the system to be overwhelmed and no one to be able to go to the bathroom. So you have to you, – what you are saying, Peter, is correct, I think. That's how pandemics run their course. 
But it's unfortunate that it, it, this has become socio-politicized that unless you do certain things to show that you still take it seriously, as seriously as you took it when we knew nothing, that you are an antisocial element who is incredibly selfish and doesn't care. I mean, for you to say, isn't it great if we all get it and we can move on, is to these people this horrifying thing. Because A, they're terrified of getting it. They're just terrified of getting it, and they always have been. And two, well, um, uh, you know, we can't move on. We shouldn't move on. We've learned a lot. And so, mm. I mean, they're, ter they're, they're, they're terrified, and they also believe that if you get it, it's a moral failing. I mean, it wasn't a more, if, if somebody went out in the 80s and did all the things that they knew, that we knew by 86, 87, gave you AIDS, there would still be no moral stigma attached to it at, the, at that time. But now, somebody who's done all of the right things, supposedly, and gets it, still feels compelled to apologize and justify and proclaim that I did all the right things. It's just, it's a bizarre inversion of the way we think about it. Rob, Omnicron. Yeah, no, look, I mean, I, I, I said so with Jay Bhattacharya. These, this is <laughs> the, it is the, the worst part of this is that, that people, we've lost the ability to celebrate good news because we don't understand anything. We have a pill. We have and, a pill. We've got that pill, right? right. And, and, and we've lost the ability to celebrate the good news that we have, which is uh, 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 Omicron is, in fact, good news. Um, weak, uh, low-impact version of a virus spreading quickly like a common cold. Um, pretty good. That's pretty good compared to like killing old people. Although it probably will kill old people too if they're not vaccinated. So if you're old, get vaccinated. That's why you should get vaccinated, Peter, because you're old. <laughs> um, then I mean, but but we, but but I guess what I'd say is like the, the, after two years, right? You'd think that this world, nothing has happened in the world this big since World War II. This is the biggest conversation, worldwide conversation since World War II. Really, that's uh, nothing else. You can go anywhere you want in America, in the world, I mean, and people will be talking about this. They will be saying Pfizer, Moderna, Omicron, Delta variant. They'll be saying the same words, PCR, uh, antigen test, all that stuff. The Q-tip they stuck up my nose in Milan is the Q-tip they stick up your nose in Mumbai. I hope they're disinfected um, first. Yeah, well, it's your <laughs> <laughs> new You get a new Q-tip. I mean, th this is a, a – ch we've all been having the same conversation for two years. So ask yourself this. Do you know more or less about it? And if you know less, as I feel I know less, whose fault is that? And I think when you look at the front page of the New York Times, as I do every day on my way to the crossroads, what I expect is a really simple fraction. How many people testing positive for whatever, whatever COVID is today? are sick right and how does that sickness and how do we get how did you get to the numerator how did you get to the denominator C uh, cornell university shut down because they had something like 800 cases 800 people now cornell is a, 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 as a university has mandatory testing so they're getting their denominator is their their denominator is the same and the numerator is getting up how many of kids in, at, at Cornell or people in the Cornell community are in the hospital with severe COVID? Zero, according to Cornell today. So we we know less because and you and you, you have to do the math yourself. Like if you right. read these articles, you right. really have I to like look and that like paragraph nine and nine and a half, maybe get sense another page. Then you're like you're comparing them. There is no information that they're giving you. you we are not being informed. We are being 
bamboozled or baffled or, or told stories or maybe it's more interesting the way they're doing it, but no one is giving you – there's no – the world the world knew how many people died every day in Vietnam, let alone World right. War II. Right, And where the Allied forces were on their way to Arnhem in World War II, and we have no idea who's got it, what that means, who's in the hospital. We hear, oh, hospital beds are filling up. That's what they say. They're filling up. What does that even mean? So the utter and total failure of the news media, of our information services, to give us any information, whereas I was told that with the Internet, you get all the information you want at your fingertips. We have no information. Well, I that do. Information I, I mean, I go, to a, go to a variety, I go to a variety of sources. I hate to say it. I do my own research, which is always well, a book. Which is, which you have to. You have to do your own math. That's for sure. Right. right, but now that means you're an idiot and a science denier. No, Rob, you're right. We don't know more in general because of this. The media's approach has always been: it's bad, it's going to be worse. So you knew cases are going up, and what you does need that mean? And, and you need to do right. this. And this is either masking or social distancing or disinfecting or but so you need to do this. And then when you move that down the road, and all the things you did really didn't have that much of an effect, then it's bad, it's going to get worse, and now you need to do this. That's been the set, and it's just this, just been this goalpost which has been continuously moved along. And now, where are we? It's bad in the north. It's going to get worse because of Omicron. And you need to do this, which is to have the booster and to still continue to mask and the rest of it. There's no end point to any of these people. At least with World War II, we knew there was an end point. Hitler shoots himself in the noggin and they burn his body in a trench. We don't have that point to. We just don't. It'll but, have to be an election. Right. I, I couldn't agree. I, the show's gone on and we all don't want to start our Christmas holiday. But I agree with Rob. One to me, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still retain the capacity to be shocked by this: the total breakdown in journalism, yeah, and the unwillingness to. I mean, it's been more than two years of this now. Two questions for you: one, the difference between dying of COVID and dying with COVID. They've had two years to sort out how they're going to do that statistical analysis, or to tell us. That in fact it's impossible. When people die, they die of such. Many people die of such a complicated set of symptoms that we. But tell us, we're the journalists asking the CDC. Why right. do you keep saying so and so many people died with COVID? So, so, of so COVID, many cases. And you don't know. So what, weird. So we. And then the other one I asked this. This came up with Jay when he and I did an interview. What was it? A month ago now, I guess. I said, Jay, wait a minute. Masks. What do the studies say? And Jason, well, actually, we still don't have any good studies on whether masks are effective or not. Still don't have good – the CDC has a budget of billions of dollars. Billions. Why don't we know? They've well, had two years to run these studies. Why aren't journalists challenging fa- – it's just staggering to Well, me. they say that there have been, that the Bangladesh study uh, decisively, Bangladesh, decisively produced uh, – said that they were good. And there's, there's a new Cato study which says – Nah, blah, nah. But Fauci's out there again today saying that probably is great. Look, we can go on and on and on. I just pray to God in a year from now we are not repeating these same things and talking yes. about COVID. Well, I see, I don't think we're going to because I yeah. think people are at their breaking point. Yes. So I don't think people we're going to have to worry about it. That's my big story for 2022. Right. When people finally say, you know what, give it to me. I'll take it. I'll take COVID. And uh, the, the sort of the, 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 the safety police are like, no, you can't. Oh, my God, you can't. Don't go outside. It's like this. What is that horrible movie that I kind of was forced to see? It was something like Snowpiercer. 
for the whole thing is this tra- idiotic movie. The train mm-hmm. goes around the world for no reason other than it's just one of the most apocalyptic movies in the movie sense. And it's like, well, you can't go outside. If you go outside, uh, the, the environment outside the train will kill you. And you know from the first reel that the environment outside the train will not kill you, and that will be something that the people discover. They'll discover... Mm-hmm. So everyone in the in the Snowpiercer train apparently has never seen a movie like Snowpiercer. I have seen a movie like Snowpiercer, so I knew you could go outside. So I was going go outside and like, oh my god, we've been lied to. And this is what it doesn't last that long. Americans are already already discovering that you could go out, you can live your life. If you're fat or old, get the vax, get the booster. If you just want belt and suspenders, get the vax and the booster. Live your life. I was a moment in the old science fiction movie where somebody takes off his helmet and breathes and says, it's breathable. I felt that way the first time I took off my mask in a public building downtown last year, <laughs> and I didn't die on the spot. We are still here after 574 uh, podcasts. Yes. We'll be hitting 600 in the year to come. Can't wait for that. Some surprises about where we might hold it. But uh, are we on next week, guys? Are we doing New Year's Eve? Or no, we're doing no. Oh, my God. What yeah, day is it? We're not on next week. So, you know, Christmas Eve. my advice... We're going to have to put this at the top of the program. Everybody, play this one at one-half speed in your podcast app. That way you can <laughs> spread it out and savor it over the next this fortnight. Is our idea. Peter, Rob, I want you to know and everybody else to know this was brought to you by Stamps.com, by Pendulum, and by Indochino. Support them for supporting us, and it'll make your life easier, better, and more stylish, too. And join Ricochet today. Why? Because it's fun, and it's great. And once you discover the member community, you're going to realize this has been on the web all the time, and I didn't find it. Go there. Give us those five stars on Apple Podcasts, if you will, of course. And, of course, stop back when next we do this again. Merry Christmas, Peter and Rob. Merry Christmas to everybody who's listening. And we'll see everyone in the comments. Merry Christmas. I'm going to try to set up Rob. Happy holidays, my friends. Happy holidays (laughs) with whatever your faith tradition. And so as Tiny Tim declared, Rob. God bless Ricochet. (laughs) Every member. Happy New Year, boy. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Talk to you next year. Season's greetings. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. While the merry bells keep ringing, may your every wish come true. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. May the calendar keep ringing Happy Holidays to you. Ricochet. Join the conversation. If you're burdened down with trouble, if your nerves are wearing thin, pack your load down the road, come to Holiday If the traffic noise affects you like a squeaky violin, kick your cares down the stairs and Come to Holiday Inn. If you can't find someone who 